Here we go. August 28, 2011, lecture discussion number Intermission 1. Actually, a review, which means, <coughs> excuse me, that we've gone through 45 lectures. Seems like two, doesn't it? We've gone through 45 lectures that pertain to the book of Romans, and we've only got, because it's the intermission, we've only got 45 left to go. That's right. So the end is right there. It's in sight, just a little less than a year away. My, how the time flies when we're having such fun. By the way, the intermission is conveniently and suspiciously timed. The review here is uh, during the Alaska State Fair and the Labor Day weekend. As I know, as a trained professional, this is the biggest crowd of the next two Sundays. It's going to be going to be tough next week. And uh, we always say that we'll shut it down and eat the buffet first if there's less than 20 people here. And we're really close. But as always the case, uh, I've made quite the mess Ollie. If you know what that joke means, you're what? In your, yes, you are. Thank you. Thank you. You're. Yeah, you must not be. You have no idea. No idea. But uh, so it's a good idea to sweep some of it all up into neat little piles. I don't really clean the messes up. That's the railroad way. The railroad way was make a mess. That's fine. But then go and stack the mess, mess neatly. Don't ever clean it up. You just have neat messes and everybody will think that there's some value to them. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sweep it up into neat little piles before we go into phase two of our Roman study. And notice, as I said, not removing. The piles are still going to be there. I'm just going to try to make them so they seem to make more sense to you. Manageable, categorized, contained. What's happening is, is we've got so much material. Whose fault is that? We have so much material strewn. Who threw it all over the place? All over the room that this intermission is my opportunity to kind of clear a path and um, yeah, through it. And so with that being the plan, let us make a list of the piles that we have that are in need of some kind of assemblage. Obviously, we have, let me move my board, we have our quantum theory pile that's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but it really, honestly, it's almost uh, to where you guys have got it um, handled. It is the Edgar Andrews who made God heap uh, quantum mechanics, and it contains many things that we're going to have to review. I'm going to put them up here, and you're going to go, okay, do I fully understand them? Uh, how, good, how am I doing? We have wave-particle duality, right? How are you doing with wave-particle duality? Um, constructive and destructive interference. Could you bluff yourself through an essay test on either one of those two? That's what, that's what it's all about, right? Um, diffraction. Very important diffraction. That's one of the basis of uh, uh, Louis de Broglie's positions, how he decided that everything... Uh, how, that, that raised the uncertainty principle. Entanglement. Superposition. Uh, 
wave probability, or probability waves is probably a better way of putting it. Probability waves and diffraction have a relationship, as I hope you've understood. Maybe not, it's okay. Um, the uncertainty principle. Observation effect. And I know my writing is not so good when I do it this fast. Uh, and then we start getting into things like, why does water run downhill, which is where you left off, or gravitational fields? Gravitational fields are important because they begin to deal with the curvature of space and time, right? Um, let me just put a curved space. No, I won't. You'll understand that. You know that gravitational curved, curved stuff, if you will. Relativity, Einstein, right? General relativity, special relativity. Eleven, uh, interferometer theory. Interferometer theory forms the basis. It's called, of course, as you know, interferometry. How many of you went around trying to tell people yesterday at church we studied interferometry? Okay? Um, that, uh, that gets me to complementarity. I have to complementarity. Um, and then I have turtles all the way down, right? Which is the fallacy of infinite regression. And then finally, all you need to know now of those, once you've got all of those, and that's not very much, is it? Now you have the four irreconcilable forces, which is gravity again. This time on its own, not using it to curve things. Electromagnetic force, which is called EMF. Electromagnetic force, the weak nuclear force. Okay. That's my nuclear sign. The weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. Okay. And now that looks daunting to you. I realize that. But if you had to do your best to describe, out of those 14 things, the test was, let me repeat them for the Internet audience, wave-particle duality, constructive-destructive interference, diffraction, entanglement, superposition, probability waves, uncertainty principle, the observation effect, gravitational fields and how it applies to uh, curving things, time, space, relativity, Interferometer theory, complementarity, fallacy of infinite regression, turtles all the way up, and a gravity, electromotive force, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. If you had to pick ten of those to pass your test, how many of them would be a blank page? 
<laughs> Nine is not good. Uh, think you have a curve. How much could you write on wave particle duality? How much, just, you know, answer to yourself. Which ones? Which just because no one's here but us? And we're eating all the hot dogs. Talk to me a little bit. Um, which ones are the ones that you know nothing about, have never heard of? They make no sense to you at all. If you, if you, uh, had to bet your living room furniture that you could get some of it right, um, uh, which one would you stay away from? Fallacy of infinite regression. Turtles all the way up. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that is difficult. That's more philosophy than it is anything else. Uh, our logic, and I can understand that. Anybody else have a response, have a response? Complementarity, very difficult as well. What that says is that, of course, I have, I have a, a, I have a wave function and a particle function. I can observe the particle function. I can observe the wave function, but I cannot observe both at the same time. Superposition is when I have a photon, for example, going through an interferometer and it appears, and it is, in two places at the same time. It's Young's two-slit uh, two experiment uh, applied to an interferometer. In other words, uh, an electron, a neutron, a photon can be in two places simultaneously. That's superposition. Okay? You're doing a lot better than you think. You're at least wrestling with the terms. And everything is just term-based. Once you get familiar with the terms, you're okay. Last week after the sermon, somebody came up and, and I got started having fun a little bit. I asked them what fire was made of. If somebody asked you what fire was made of, what, what would you answer? It, it turns me into, by the way, a uh, three-year-old kid. I get to be a three-year-old kid, or maybe a four-year-old, if you will. I don't know for sure, because I try to stay away from that age at all possible. Uh, what's fire made of? Some people would respond, heat. And what would I do as the four-year-old? What's heat made of? Right? And then you would say, uh, energy. And I'd say, what's energy made of? I just keep doing it to you. What is it made of? Now, let me take you, by the way, to the soul spirit. What is the soul spirit made of? And if you tell me that it's made of a particle, what am I going to do? What's the particle made of? Nice job, but the first thing I'm going to do as a five-year-old is say, what are the electrons made of? Ah, what are the subatomic particles made of? I keep doing this. What are the basic, do you realize that physics cannot tell you what the basic building blocks are? We have no position anymore on the basic building blocks. In fact, uh, Mr. Egger, uh, Egger Andrews, makes that very clear. That's one of the pr profound things in his book, is that physics has recognized that we got nothing. We don't even know if an electron, in fact, we're convinced now an electron is not a particle, and that it has no mass. Uh-oh. So what's the physical reality made of is a wonderful question. Why does water run downhill? Because of what? Gravity. What did Edgar tell you in his book? I hope you read that part. What's gravity made of? What do they say? What do they say? Gravitons. Okay, show me one. I ain't got one. We really don't know if they exist. 
But that's what that's what's causing water. We can't even describe why water water runs downhill. And that's very important for you to know. Because that's your what in the Bible? That's your Ecclesiastes 3.11. And there's the battle, right? And next, after we did that, we go to the theological implications of subatomic diameter. That's your one pile. I put that in a... That's only 14 things. It's not that bad. You will get through it. This is the review. Oh, I'm sorry, Dave. I'm just wiping you out here, baby. Did you get it? Electromotive force, weak nuclear force, strong nuclear force. Those are irreconcilable, by the way, gravity, electromotive force. They're working against each other. How do we reconcile those four forces? Just more puzzles. Now, on to the quantum mechanics pile. Next to the quantum mechanics pile is the theological implications of the quantum mechanics pile. Does that make sense? we got a problem, bunch of problems. And now, what is the implications of it? Okay, are the uh, the implications of subatomic diameter or the microscopic realm? We have free will becomes at issue. Free will and determinism. Now we're starting to get into a little bit of philosophy. Welcome to Cliffside, where you learn physics and philosophy and how they fit together. How many of you, while reading your supplemental textbook, Edgar Andrews, Who Made God? Did you get to the place where he said the philosophical implications of what we're discovering in the physical sciences is unbelievable? How many got to that? Because that's what, that's the basis of his book, frankly. What are we going to do with this? What's it mean? That's what got Einstein and the rest of these men uh, uh, just stunned, astonished, astounded. They knew they were in awe of what they were finding out. And they still are. And we're not. We think that we've solved this. That's what I'm trying to say to you. We have not solved this. Mankind has not solved anything. Can't explain anything. Can't explain why water runs downhill. All mankind can do is describe that water runs downhill. It says there's water. There's downhill, and the water runs down. Why? Gravitons that we don't think exists. So that's where we're at. Right now we have the theological implications. Free will is a theological implication of this, as is determinancy. Okay? Uh, spiritual reality and physical reality... Substance dualism is what that is, right? That we are a two-component being. We have a spiritual component and a physical component, and they radically interact, and we don't know how it works. But we know we have a spiritual component. Some will say no. The monists will say no. The evolutionists will say no. We only have a physical component. Well, I can prove otherwise, and I will. I hope I have. Let me put it this way. I'm getting off of my... We have self-awareness. I know we have self-awareness when I say we because I have self-awareness. And so what do I assume? That you have self-awareness. And you do. 
Self-awareness versus cognitive or cognition. Did I spell that right? I hope I did. Bad thing about Dave taking pictures of the board. And we'll get to that in a minute because uh, uh, I'm going to read a couple of emails. You think you're struggling. Wait till you hear the Internet group. It's, uh, they don't get to see the board or they don't get to talk to me afterwards. It's, they're in a battle. Uh, bless their hearts and we're going to try to help them as best we can. But all of that, by the way, is mind-brain problem or the mind-brain issue. How does the mind interact with the brain? You're back to Descartes. You're back to dimethyltryptamine and the, and the pineal gland and all of this kind of thinking that has gone on through the years. And then, of course, when the, once you reach this, you have salvation by grace is one of the implications. Why do I say salvation by grace is an implication of the subatomic diameter? Because if the subatomic diameter is 99% empty space, then what's left? In other words, if physical reality is overwhelmingly empty space, what is left? The spiritual reality, that's all you have. You either have a spiritual reality or a physical reality, or you have a combination of both. But if I have very little physical in the physical, if my particles that I am calling physical reality don't even exist or have no mass, then what is physical reality? And if physical reality is mostly empty space, then I only have a spiritual reality. If I only have a spiritual reality, then I have salvation by grace. Does that make sense to you? Because why wouldn't it, why wouldn't I have salvation by physical reality? There is no physical reality. I know the first time when I get, I get people will write me and call me on the internet. I, I'm, I'm, the first time I heard, and I, I, I remember the philosophy class, trying to remember the name of the professor. But that was the discussion. And if Jack were here, he went to freshman philosophy class. The first thing the philosophy teacher told the whole class is there is no physical reality and went about proving it to them. Okay? But that all fits, and I hope you do figure that out. So then if it's salvation by grace, what is the purpose of the ubiquitous law? Law is... The law is ubiquitous or universal. What is the purpose of the ubiquitous law? Yes, so that you'll understand God, how He thinks. That's our plan, is to understand what He defines as sin. And now you get into prayer. Why do you get into prayer? Because of the theological implications of subatomic diameter? Because it's a spiritual process, not a workspace process. So you have prayer and works. Okay, what are works? What, are, what do works accomplish? By the way, you have to define them properly. But what do they accomplish? Why do you have works? Obedience is a very good answer, but who sees the works besides God? Angels see them, that's right. Who else sees them? People see them. So there you go. God, angels, and people. Do our works affect God? You can make the case for sadness and gladness, but he's omniscient. So we're into that here eventually. 
Do they affect your neighbors, your friends, your family? Yeah, so works are a witness-based item, aren't they? That's what the whole difference between uh, uh, James and, and Paul, Romans and, and the book of James. A- Abraham at salvation, which is in Romans, that's uh, Genesis 15. Abraham with the greatest witness in Scripture, in my view, uh, which would be uh, uh, Genesis 22. Okay, so all of this gets you to good and evil. And then number nine here really fast, sin and death. Because you can't really separate sin from death or death from sin. And then resurrection and life. Resurrection to life. Are there two S's in resurrection? Or just one? Just one. Okay. Now that Dave's taking pictures of it. And then all of that gets me to the John Hanin comma which is just a fancy way of saying the discussion on the triunity of God. And I know I brought up John Hanin comma a lot so that I can get you to start wrestling with it. And that is another very high, daunting mountain. But once again, many of you are climbing away and some of you have gone up two, maybe three feet which is spectacular. Don't laugh. That's really good. Okay, now right here is a good time to read the uh, emails from the Internet. I got two emails that I recently received that demonstrate uh, very well how the Internet component of Cliffside Community Chapel is faring with all of this so that you all don't feel alone. One is from uh, Jennifer from Arizona, who along with Sharon from Texas is vying for teacher favorite, as you might be aware. And the other is from uh, Chris and Karen Lincoln from Lee's Summit, Missouri. And actually, it's a two-part submittal, which makes it uh, special, and you'll understand why that is in a moment when I read it. And I'll read Chris's first and then Jennifer's, because, as I alluded, Jennifer is in danger of being accused (coughs) and tried uh, for lecture usurption uh, by the body here, being that this is her third or fourth email that I've read, and I realize that the trial, Jennifer, is petty and perhaps ugly, but this is a tough crowd. And she's listening now. You know that, right? So you're making fun of her. She knows. Uh, and she needs to know that there's a seniority system here, and there's uniforms with badges and assigned seating, and you don't be messing with somebody's chair. No moving around is allowed, and you must sit in the place you always sat in. And people have little stools that they use, and there's no exceptions to that rule. And and if you wanted a friendly church, Jennifer, you should have gone to one. And if you don't like the rules, that's good. You're not supposed to like the rules here. We don't like people who like the rules. So, Jennifer, you get the point. Curmudgeons run in fear from Cliffside Community Chapel. Okay, Chris Lincoln. And i got to read the first one and then the second one, and they're out of order, so fortunately I caught myself. I have big notes which one to read. Dear Pastor Chronister, thank you for the excellent series on Romans and the sidebar book, Who Made God? I really enjoyed Professor Andrew's book, barring a few pages that were 10,000 feet over my head. Still, I got the point. 
I had not understand our, our dual physical spiritual existence very well until having heard you explain it in these recent sermons. I know I have a long way to go to understand duality, but you have my ship pointed in the right direction. Kudos. I have been wondering if our dual nature may be related to a topic that I still don't quite get, God's wrath. No matter how hard I try, I can't seem to understand how his wrath applies to a person's physical death. Much of my understanding of wrath comes from an imbalance of intake of end times prophecy. I don't, I just don't get how tragic and painful death will be any different then as it has been in the past. I also don't understand our Christian fixation for thinking we will avoid agony in the future when we haven't been excluded from it in the past or the present. Mass, mass casualty is still a bunch of individual casualties. I am sure that our spiritual being would be the one suffering wrath were it not for a savior, but I just don't know how. Please correct me if I'm wrong. The best explanation I have heard, and I don't think it's very good, is that one would be separated from God. I don't see how this is possible with an omnipresent God. And two, I know many people who would think that separation from God would be good. Can you help me unglue, or can you help unglue me from the, this mess I'm in? Lee, or I'm sorry, Chris Lincoln, Lee Summit, Missouri, uh, Chris and Karen Lincoln. Sorry, I left out Karen. Chris didn't want to do that. And my father, by the way, Chris, was born in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. So I don't know how far away from Lee Summit, but my father's name was Lee. So I'm kind of hoping maybe I own the place. You know, there's always a chance. And if you're near Poplar Bluff, uh, uh, Chris uh, and Karen, uh, um, let me know how many houses are there, and I'll see if one of them is mine. I actually, I had uh, uh, Muriel uh, Stewart, uh, my dad's sister, was there in Poplar Bluff. Okay, a couple of points on God's wrath. Let me erase this. Uh, do I have to? Yes, I do. A couple of points on uh, God's wrath. Before we get started, let me get this all off the board as we're... Continuing our review, I don't know how far we'll get. But whenever you have issues with God's wrath, and could you hear, I didn't necessarily read it correctly, but could you hear that last part very well, where he was saying that a lot of people would be happy to be separated from God. Why? What's his implication? Because God's what? Angry, wrathful, capricious maybe, uh, vindictive, violent, kills people. And I get that a lot. So a couple of points. Everyone's got to consider the, uh, something before venturing into the issue. Ask the obvious questions. Let's just ask the obvious question. Is God's wrath, anger, good or evil? Isaiah 5.20. Is God's wrath or his anger good or evil? You have to start there. Uh, whatever we do, we can't anthropomorphize. And what do I mean by that? We can't apply our sinful human... Oh, I forgot to read a second post. Golly, almost messed up. Sorry, Chris. I only read one. Let me make that point before I read Chris's. We can't anthropomorphize. We can't apply our sinful human characteristics to God. 
He doesn't have ours. So if you're thinking that His anger is like your anger, you're already in the ditch. You didn't get very far. Don't do that. That's what gets you in trouble. But let me read uh, his second email. I'm sorry, I forgot it. and That's critical. Dear Pastor Chronister, Wow. I really hope my previous email got lost or ignored. <laughs> because I found the answer to my question right in the podcast from Father's Day as well as the one from the preceding week where you talked about Lazarus and the Pharisee. Please disregard the previous transmission. I think I've got it now. I'm glad the Holy Spirit led me to re-listen to this summer's podcast starting at May. Today I had a long day of mowing grass ahead of me and had decided to pasture. So he's probably, uh, I probably, I might own some of this place still. Yeah, I didn't notice it. And I decided to revisit some of the material because I have been fascinated by the discussion of the Andrews books as it relates to Romans. I don't know how I missed that straightforward discussion of God's wrath from the June 19 podcast. I know I listened to it because I remember laughing just as hard the first time I heard the story of Michael Tavalero and Lorenzo Lopez. By the way, there's more to that story. I, ne- I left this part out because I didn't know. While the, the, while Lorenzo and Max were being looked for by Lorenzo and Michael, or Lorenzo and Michael being looked for by Lorenzo and Michael, Catherine was on the phone and the 911 operator asking, uh, uh, trying to be an intermediary between the police officer and the 911 operator and, and she would talk to Mike on the same time, her husband Mike, not the son Max, who is really Mike, uh, she would talk to him on the phone and had the 911 operator simultaneously. And so she would say, uh, Mike, have you found Max? And the 911 operator would interrupt and say, have they found Mike? You're talking to Mike. No, I found Mike. And that, Lorenzo, have you, have they found Lorenzo? No. Wait a minute, you're talking to Lorenzo? And so all of that was involved in that as well. So that was pretty, Interesting, and I wish I had rem- I had known about it. Anyway, so uh, your sermons are great. They really stick to my ribs. Please continue to upload them. I just wish I could see the whiteboard. Well, uh, Chris, we're doing what we can with that, and thank you for your emails. Uh, and I'll repeat some of that. You're asking me if I looked up the June 19th sermon. I didn't. I don't remember what I said. Because uh, that was June 19th. This is August. That was two months ago, and that's the end of my capabilities, uh, as you know. Uh, seriously, I, I, I'm really not sure what I did. I know the subject material, but I can't come back and tell you what it was that might have helped you, Chris. But let me help the rest of everybody else. God has no sin ever. Don't ever have a position. Don't ever think that your sin somehow is like him. It's not. He has added humanity. Jesus Christ, as you know, the second person of the triune God, added humanity. He is the Word made flesh. He's God Himself in the flesh. He's the Ancient of Days. He's the I Am. He's Almighty God, Creator of all things. He's the Invisible made visible. But His humanity is perfect humanity. Perfect humanity. That's important. God's wrath and God's anger is not the same as ours. Our humanity is desperately wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9. God is always good. It's a never not. There is never a time when God is not good. 
So when you encounter the wrath of the Lord or the anger of the Lord in Scripture, ask the next obvious question. What is the purpose of His anger? How is it good? Because it's got a purpose and that purpose is good. Define God's anger correctly. What is God's definition of His anger? Not your definition or my definition. God's definition. How does He define what He calls His anger? Our anger, as I said, is just filled with crud. His is perfect. Righteous. Holy. Just. Good. So I ask, what is He stopping because if his anger is, is there, and his wrath is there, and people are dying, what's he stopping? Who is he saving? Who is being loved? Or in other words, what would be the consequences if God did nothing? You see the consequences of his intervention. What about the consequences if he doesn't intervene? And by the way, he cannot do nothing. He must intervene. His goodness demands, it requires him to intervene. He must save. He will save. It is who he is. He creates. He saves. He gives. That's what he does. And therefore, when the truth of Jesus Christ is being attacked, God will protect that truth. Why? Think the Korah Rebellion. The truth of Jesus Christ. Think Nadab and Abihu bringing strange incense to the altar. Their first day on the job, they die. Got their, their uniforms. They look like guys behind the McDonald's thing, a little hat. They're on the job one day. Never got any training, really. Boom, they're dead because they brought strange incense. Is that good? Yes, it's good. Why? The whole nation of Israel is at stake. Were those two young men saved and are they going to be resurrected and they're going to have eternal life? Yes, he says so. But he had to teach the nation of Israel. He must intervene. He protects the truth of the doctrine. There is only one salvation. It is through Jesus Christ alone. God will protect that. That's how salvation and redemption and eternal life, all of that's good. That's how that happens. And next, the question I, I, I get, I ask this often and because I get this kind of thing a lot. The most, it's the most obvious of the obvious questions with regard to this. And, um, is it good for God to end sin? Because that's ultimately what his wrath is doing, isn't it? His anger, if you will, what it's doing is righteous, perfect anger is ending sin. Is it good for him to do it? Answer yes. You heard the song, yes, Lord, yes. Answer yes. Does his goodness require that he end sin? Answer yes. You don't have to answer loud. You can do it you know, silently. Now, what, does, what must he do to end sin? How's he going to do it? Is the way that he ends sin, is that the only way it can be ended? Answer, yes. Because his omniscience requires that to be true. If... If you, me, us, them, anyone thinks uh, they, they know a different way, a way that is better than what God is currently doing, then what are they accusing God of? They're saying that they are they have raised themselves to his level. That's one thing they've done. 
But they're saying that he's not good because why? Their way is better. They have thought of a better way. And if you are capable of thinking of a better way, what's the obvious question? If I am capable, Steve Cronister, am capable of thinking a better way that God could have used in order to save mankind or to end sin, I have a better plan. Steve's plan. Buy Steve's plan on the Internet now. 1099 plus shipping and handling, which is only 40, 50 bucks. And maybe it'll get to you, maybe it won't, don't count on it. In fact, I guarantee you it won't come. But if I say that Steve has a better plan, what have I just said? I have said that God is profoundly stupid. Because I'm smarter than him, and I'm profoundly stupid. So God is an idiot. You have said that he's stupid and that he's not good. And if he's not good, then he's evil. And now you're back into Isaiah 5.20. You've said he's not omniscient because he didn't think of the plan. You thought of it or I thought of it. And then what else doesn't he know? And then you've broken the triangle, haven't you? Because if he's not omniscient, then he can't be what? i got omni, 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 right? If he's not omniscient, he can't be omnipresent. If I break one of them off, they all break. He's not omniscient, he's not, not omnipotent, and he's not omnipresent. And if he's neither of those, then there is no salvation. He can't judge, he can't end sin, he can't save anyone from sin, he can't even save himself, everything's doomed. He broke it all down. And, and that's just how to get started with the God's wrath question. It doesn't, end, doesn't get you to the finish line by any means. I hope that that helps you, Chris, if, if that was in the... Uh, I know that you said that I did some of that in the June 19th lecture, uh, but just in case I left any of that out, I wanted to get it here. But your question, uh, it comes up all the time. It's very important. I left out the omnipresence of God and the separation of God. Uh, that's coming soon, actually, very soon, um, probably next week. So I hope you and Karen find that and, and enjoy uh, uh, Lee's Summit, Missouri. Okay, next. Jennifer from Arizona. Another great one, Pastor. I assume that she meant uh, sermon. Timely for what has been going on. He who has an ear, let him hear the alarms. You also said what I have felt, and one reason I left the Pentecostal church, or the Signs and Wonders movement, signs and wonders deceive. I wish God would be performing signs and wonders through the church, but it just doesn't seem to fit. Why do you want God to perform signs and wonders is what I would ask, right? Who else wanted God to perform signs and wonders recently? The Pharisees. That's right. What did he say to them? You're an evil generation. You want me to be an organ grinder monkey. Is that what you want? Good luck with that. I'll give you the sign of Jonah. That's all you get. Anyway, back to Jennifer. I have, I have often thought, how will the Antichrist deceive with signs and wonders if they are an everyday occurrence? A very good question. So that makes you ask, the, what is an everyday occurrence, or what we see as an everyday occurrence, may not be a sign and wonder. Even the church would be removed, even the church would be removed prior to that. It just doesn't make sense. And to blame lack of healings, etc., on one's faith, well, didn't he give us our measure of faith anyhow? And you end up in a position where you demand that your faith be part of the equation, right? 
In order for me to be healed, I have to have what? I have to have faith. Does Christ God need my faith to heal me? In other words, is my faith going to stop him? What have I done with my faith? I made my faith pretty powerful. I need a uniform, little tights, and a cape. Steve's faith. I can stop God from healing me. Can I stop God from anything? No. It's illogical and it is disrespectful. Let me go further. It's bordering on blasphemy. Okay, let me go further. It's blasphemy to say that you are, you have a power that can stop God. What is he, by the way? Let's go back over the iron triangle. Omnipotent. What does that mean? All powerful. So, he has all the power. You don't seem to have much. Hey, I noticed in one of your lectures you mentioned God being silent now. I understand that from my mid-Acts dispensational studies, but I struggle with the amount of silence. I understand no extra biblical revelation, no signs and wonders, but I have a hard time with no answered prayers, which the right dividers or Pauline doctrine teaches. I hope you discuss this one of these days. I would like to hear your interp on this. Thanks, as always, love to Cliffside. Don't you feel bad for booing Jennifer. She, she loves you. Okay. This is begun, uh, uh, solved, if you will, with the same starting process as Chris's concern. Jennifer is essentially wrestling with the great parentheses. How many of you have heard me talk about the great parentheses? I go all the way to the Italian mafia writer of the Bible, right? The Malachi papers. Okay, okay. Malachi. I go all the way to Malachi, and then what do I got? I got... I don't have a single prophet until I get to John the Baptist, right? So I have this period of time where there is no prophet in Israel. And then I get the, I get the cross, if you will, and now I have this period of time where Israel has, has gone down here. And we're in this parentheses period. A dual track, I have this parentheses where we don't seem to have Prophets in Israel. Why don't we? Why was John the Baptist the last prophet of Israel? What was his job? His job was to say, "That's the Messiah." How'd he do? The kingdom is at hand, but the kingdom isn't his hand. That's the Messiah. What if I had another prophet? What would he be doing? He'd be saying, if I had any prophets past John the Baptist, what would be the problem? They'd have to point back to Christ, but if they didn't, then, then John the Baptist's testimony is invalidated, isn't it? God's not going to have another prophet. He goes from, from Malachi to John the Baptist. Now we're in this parentheses period where there is no prophets in Israel, and what are we doing? We're gathering the church. That's what we're doing. But you begin and you solve Jennifer's issues, and she's essentially, as I said, wrestling with this great parenthesis and the purpose of signs and wonders, as well as counterfeits with respect to languages and healings. Added to that is uh, www.godhatesamputees.com. Remember me doing that? And prayer is a lucky horseshoe, because um, that's their assertion. And we dealt with that for a little while. It's another one of our piles that I've got to sweep up neatly and readdress, and, and much sweeping and much sifting. I know that's my lot in life. 
insert sigh and, 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 and pity for me. Okay, don't. Anyway, once again, ask the obvious questions. What is God's definition of signs and wonders? Not yours, not mine, not Jennifer's. Who gets to decide what is a sign or a wonder? God does. So what's his definition? It's certainly not what is sold as a miracle at these Carnival Barker Brother Loves Traveling Salvation shows where the big moment or the highlight is miraculously healing earwax buildup or dandruff. I've been to so many of those in my life and I, I just sat there and I was just ashamed to be there. I, I, the one I never forgot, and I wish I could get one of those guys here just to show you and let them think that we were really listening to him. But the first thing they always do at every one of those that I ever went to was they would look off Somebody here has a bad back. Duh. Everybody over 50 has a bad back. I mean, give me, give me a break. Is that a, take an Advil, buy a new mattress. I mean, come on. Is that a miracle? Is that the best you got? You must be kidding me. Is that what God calls a sign? Is when God comes, He's going to stand on stage and go, somebody's got foot odor, or gout. Is that what he's going to do? Is that what Christ did? Is that a sign and a wonder? There is no John the Baptist, and there does not seem to be what Christ did. Okay, let me say it better. There is not what Christ did. We're in a great parenthesis. We had Elijah, we had Elisha, we had tremendous things going on. We had a flaming chariot. At Ezekiel, Daniel's prophecies, and then it seems like it all pointed to Jesus Christ. Well, yeah. So what is God's definition? And then what is His purpose for signs and wonders? Signs and wonders accompany certain events. They accompany the marriage of Israel to YHVH. Okay? The ineffable name of God. They, they, they accompany that miracle and they are, I'm sorry, that marriage and they accompany also those signs and wonders by God's definition. They accompany the betrothal of the church to Christ, okay? And by the way, the miracles and the signs and wonders of both of those events were the same. I had languages and I had, which is the thunderings. I had the thunderings or the languages and the rushing wind and the fire and the smoke at Sinai. I had the exact same thing at, at, uh, at the betrothal of the church in Acts 2. They both happened on the same feast day. Feast day number 4, Shavuot. Also, signs and wonders identify the Messiah, the Son of David. There are certain signs that only the true Messiah can do, interfering um, uh, with the uh, ubiquity of law. In other words, the Messiah can interfere with the ubiquity of law. No one else can do that. However, as Jennifer astutely points out, the Antichrist is very powerful and he will make the entire world marvel and worship him. Will he do that with some kind of secret little video and hand signals from his confederates in the back of the room? No, he's going to blow stuff up. 
It's going to be amazing. Satan will be inside him, inside the Antichrist again. Let me repeat that. Satan will be inside the Antichrist again. And they will seem to mankind as an unstoppable, unbeatable, supernatural force. But once again, mankind is deceived. God in the flesh will flick away the Satan Antichrist like a gnat. There's no comparison. It's a rowboat with a squirt gun against the USS Ronald Reagan. That doesn't do it justice. It's a joke. But mankind will think, wow, who can beat the Antichrist? Duh. The omnipotent guy, maybe. Just a, just a thought. So signs and wonders are alongside the, the origin of Israel, the marriage of Israel, the betrothal of the church. Uh, they, they point to the Messiah, the coming uh, of Christ, the first coming of the Messiah. And they are also, the, there are replacement, or they're inferiors, they're still incredible, um, done by uh, the Antichrist and Satan. See Moses and the Pharaoh on that. So those are my four number one things, that, or four things that the Antichrist, Ah, got to say it better. Soda. Those are my four things that the signs and wonders uh, accompany. Marriage, betrothal, Messiah, false Messiah. Finally, signs and wonders declare the imminent end to the age of the Gentiles, the end of the wickedness and the wicked ones, or the tribulational period, which is the second coming of the Messiah, which comes after the great parentheses or the church age. So ask this, what is God's purpose for the great parentheses? Why do we have a great parentheses? Why do we have this gathering of the church and Israel no longer the focus? Israel is down here. Israel becomes the focus again. When? They become the focus again right here. When the great parentheses is over, they are, it is the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble. It is, it is not the time of the bride's trouble. So the emphasis goes back on Israel. He has put this 2,000 year period between his first coming and his second coming. Why did his plan have this? And it's precisely prophesied. It's hidden within the God-given Hebrew betrothal ceremony, which Christ constantly refers to. And it's on our list of things that every Bible student needs to know. Before we go there, let me take on Jennifer's last element, the answered prayer part. What is God's definition of prayer? Ask that again. Always try to get God's definition. What is his definition? What is God's purpose for prayer? Why does he command that we pray? He does pray unceasingly, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Why does he tell us to go into our room, shut the door? What does secrecy have to do with prayer? What is this vain pagan repetition stuff? Vain repetition in the context of paganism, Matthew 6. Prayer is a spiritual action, not a physical action. It's a spiritual connection to God who is spirit, John 4.24. No discussion on prayer can exclude the immutability of God. What I mean by that? God is unchangeable. God cannot be changed. If you're, you're trying to change God with your prayer, you bark and bad. Wrong tree. He is always. And that's good. Prayer does not change God. What does prayer do? God can't change. Who can change? 
We have the prayer and the prayer prayed to. Okay, here's the prayer. Uh, I can't draw the prayed to. It can't won't fit. I draw the prayer way too big because you can probably see it. Okay, there, much better. Now the prayer. What's those are the only two in the equation. Who's going to change? The prayer is going to change. God does not change. Prayer changes us. But, Mr. Chronister, which is what I get called by Jennifer and others now because I'm, I'm, I'm using it as a propaganda system now. What about all the places in Scripture that seem to imply, let me repeat that, that seem to imply that God changed his mind? What about all those places that you can find where God changed his mind? Have you really found them? No, you haven't. You might think you have, but what are you? Wrong. So the real question is, is how is it that I'm wrong? And my little grasshopper, that is why dramatic theodicy is on our list here, and I'm going to read this list because that's all we have time for. Things to deal with, not necessarily in order. The prophecy of the shepherds. You have to know your good shepherd, idle shepherd prophecy of Zechariah 11 through 13. The Nazaritic vow. See, it's just like quantum mechanics, isn't it? Here's another list. The Nazaritic vow. That's Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16, or what's called the Samson typology. It just for fun. It solves why Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazaritic Nazareth. It solves why. He refused. He tasted. Now, he's omniscient, right? He knows what's in the first wine sponge that he's given. So why does he taste it? And then he refuses it. That's because of the Nazaritic vow and other things, by the way. But he, he, he took the second one and then died. Why does he do that? Samson typology, Nazaritic vow. Number three, the sign of Jonah. Number four, the Exodus, crucifixion, Passover pattern, creation week, sorry, sign of the Sabbath. Number five, Jephthah's daughter, Judges 11 and 12. Jephthah's daughter was dedicated to temple service, not sacrificed and killed. Dedicated to temple service for how long? Oh, I bet you find that it fits right into the great parentheses. The Hebrew betrothal ceremony, Adam and Eve. The high priest, Yom Kippur, two goats. you got to know why the second goat goes to Azazel with nothing on it. Number eight, Moses and Zipporah, the Abrahamic sign of circumcision. We've done a lot of that. Number nine, triunity of God, the John Hanin comma. living souls, federal headship, the Adam typology, two trees, all of that is involved there. And then ten dramatic theodicies. You have to know uh, the immutability and the omniscience of God. If God is omniscient and He is unchangeable, why does it seem that He is changing His mind at Sodom and Gomorrah, to take an example, or <coughs> wherever else you would like to find one of those? It's because that's called a dramatic theodicy and He is teaching you something. What is He teaching? What is the purpose of this? Those ten solve lots of errors that plague the church along with the deity of Christ. That's item nine as well. Uh, see uh, John 14:11. The Father is in Christ. 
John 14, 11, and Christ is in the Father. Think about that a second. How big is the Father? He's inside of Christ. How big is Christ? Well, He's inside the Father. The implication of that verse are extraordinary. Infinity is required. Same for John 16:15. All things that the Father has are mine. How much does the Father have? He has all things, and all things that the Father has are Christ. How big is he? The Hebrew betrothal ceremony will solve only the Father knows. My Father is greater than I, not my will, but your will. All of those Hebrew betrothal ceremony context, and not knowing that causes error. So next week, the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Uh, Bill handed it out last week. If you don't have a copy, hopefully uh, see Bill. We might have one laying around, but that's what we're going to do. So this was all an introduction to get you to that. Let's rise and be dismissed.